All right, let us begin our time together with a word of prayer. Please pray with me. Dear God, we ask you to be with us once again. We know that you're here. We trust that you are in our midst. Please be with me in particular. Make my words your words. Make all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've come to the fourth and final week of this little class on the biblical worldview. We talked about identity, sexuality, and justice over the last three weeks. And now I'm going to answer some questions that we got in our question box throughout those three weeks. Let me tell you, I'm really glad that we're doing it this way There were really great questions, and there's no way that I would have been able to do them justice without some time to consider them and even research them. I have six questions that I'm going to address this morning, and I'm pretty sure that in answering them, I'm going to use up all the time that we have for adult formation this week. But don't let that stop you from asking me Questions. There have already been people who have reached out to me individually with questions, wanting to discuss certain things, and that's totally fine, encouraged even. Please do be in touch with me. I want to be here for these conversations, conversations about the three things that we talked about these last three weeks or about anything else. I want to be here whenever you need to talk about something. My phone is always on. So... Let's get to the questions. I didn't see any obvious way to organize these questions or to put them in any kind of logical order. So I'm just going to sort of jump in and address them one by one with no real attempt to transition smoothly from one to another. And in a couple of cases, I've tried to take very long and detailed questions and boil them down to their essence, at least as I saw it. So I did the best that I could. That's a plea for mercy in advance. Uh, Here we go. Question number one. Can you address Jesus's directives on sexuality as distinct from St. Paul's? Many will complain about Paul, quote, hijacking the, quote, nice Jesus, who was allegedly, quote, silent about sexuality. There's a lot of scare quotes in that question. Hijacking nice Jesus and silent about sexuality. I think the first thing to make clear here is something that the question itself implies. As biblically faithful Christians, we must reject the premise that Jesus and Paul are somehow at odds about anything in general, and in this case, about sexuality in particular. In Article 20 of our 39 articles, for instance, the church is called never, quote, to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written and, quote, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. So the very idea that Paul and Jesus might have substantively different teachings on sex or anything else runs contrary to the idea of scripture being the word of God. But I want to say that it's not just convictionally impossible. It's just something that we sort of know theoretically can't be true. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny either. Both Jesus and Paul consistently return to the teachings of Genesis when it comes to the ordering of sex and sexuality. For instance, 
In Matthew 19, in the context of a teaching about divorce, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And St. Paul goes to the exact same place in Ephesians chapter 5, speaking about how a husband and wife should relate to one another. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're founding all of their teachings on the very same foundation. And of course, Jesus does mention sex and sexuality, and forcefully so. For instance, in Mark 17, 21, Jesus says that it's for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. The word translated sexual immorality there is in the plural in Greek and serves as a generic word for sex outside the bounds of natural marriage, whatever form it may take. And Paul uses the exact same word to condemn sex outside of marriage, using it both to refer to, refer to homosexual acts in Romans and incestuous acts in 1 Corinthians and more. It's just not true that Paul and Jesus have different teachings on sex or that Paul mentions it when Jesus doesn't or that Jesus is somehow nicer about it than Paul is. Now, the major reason that we see such consonance between Jesus's teaching and Paul's is that the apostles of which Paul is one, the apostles carry the authority to teach in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one on whom they found their teaching. Their teaching by the Spirit is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. So in a sense, Paul taught what Jesus told him to teach. Indeed, it was Jesus himself who called Paul into ministry on the Damascus Road and then gave Paul the truths of God's Word. Paul himself acknowledges this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I teach what Jesus gave me. It does make sense, though, that their ministries would have different shapes and at times sound different. Paul's mission was to the Gentiles specifically, a different ministry than Jesus took on for himself. Nonetheless, the New Testament witness clearly sees Paul as Jesus's primary spokesman. To hear the words of Paul is to hear the sentiments of Christ. As the German theologian Ernst Kasemann put it, Paul taught what Jesus lived. So the difficult sexual teachings of Paul come directly from the created order sexual teachings, the often difficult created order sexual teachings of Jesus. That a man and a woman are the only pair who, as they join together in lifelong marriage, can paint an image of the love that goes on in the Godhead. And that anything but complete sexual fidelity, including even lustful thoughts and desires, as Jesus 
difficultly teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Anything short of complete sexual fidelity is enough to separate humankind from God forever, outside of Christ's sufficient intervention on the cross. And that sufficient intervention, Christ and him crucified, is what Jesus accomplished and what Paul relentlessly preached. Question number two. How can I best relate to family members who identify as gay, trans, etc., but who also claim to be Christian? I, of course, do not want to dismiss them or their parents, but I also do not buy into the identity as the rest of the family seems to. Now, the truth is that as we discussed over the past several weeks, there is no such thing as an identity for a Christian other than new creation in Christ. Now, saying such a thing is true doesn't necessarily make it any easier to express to a loved one. The, the world has convinced many people that some particular thing about them, whether their gender expression or their skin color or their sexual desires or some other thing, that some particular thing about them is and should be constitutive of who they are. And I think that our calling is to do something that the world thinks and loudly declares is impossible. We are called to tell the truth and love people. Indeed, telling the truth is required in order to be loving. We tell our children not to play in the street or stick utensils in electrical outlets, even if they want to do those things very badly because we love them, not because we don't. The hard part comes when the loved one follows the world's advice about what to do with you, this toxic person who would deny their right to exist as they see fit and tries to cut you out of their life. If you spend more than a few moments online, you'll see this advice. You'll find someone recommending that all your problems will go away if you just cut all the toxic people out of your life. Recall when Jesus first meets Simon. Simon demands that Jesus go away. Depart from me, he says, for I am a sinful man. Now, Jesus' response is simple. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for men. And Jesus says that to Simon, who becomes Peter, of course, and then simply refuses to leave. Simon says, depart from me, and Jesus does not leave. Peter becomes part of Jesus' family. Now hear me clearly, you're not Jesus. Your words do not have the same creative power that Jesus' words have. Peter's submission to Jesus, though of course it was tortured over time as we see in the scriptures, his submission to Jesus was immediate. Your family member, your loved one may reject you. And I'm probably not suggesting that you walk up to your family member out of the blue and blurt out that while you don't reject them, you reject the identity they've chosen for themselves. Jesus was able to speak so bluntly 
to Peter because he had just, as you'll recall, performed this amazing miracle. And I think each one of us is called to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit exactly what speaking the truth in love looks like in a particular relationship. But I do think that that's the calling to do a version of what Jesus did. Speak the truth and then refuse to go away. Keep calling. Keep writing notes. Keep sending messages. Keep loving. Too many Christians, I think, overemphasize one side or the other of Paul's injunction in Ephesians 4 that we speak the truth in love. We, we know that saying so well, but so many of us lean sometimes to one side or the other. Either we are so self-righteously excited to correct someone in truth that we forget we're actually called to love them, to identify with them and see ourselves as sinners too. Or we're so concerned about a human created and ultimately false idea of love, which is something more like acceptance or affirmation. We're so concerned about that false kind of love that we fail to uphold the truth at all. I think that something like honoring the truth of God's word and refusing to go away from a fellow sinner This is how we might be obedient to God's calling to speak the truth in love. We actually endeavor to do both. Tell the truth and keep loving. Question number three. How ought we to think of side B gay Christians? In order to answer this question, I'm going to need to do some definitions. I got these Definitions that I'm going to share with you now of side A and side B Christians from a website called Equip, which is findable online at equipyourcommunity.org and a ministry that defines itself, identifies itself as, quote, proudly and decidedly side B. So they're defining themselves when I share with you what a side B gay Christian is. Here are the definitions according to Equip. A person who has a side A perspective on Christian sexual ethics typically believes that God makes people gay. He blesses same-sex marriages in the same ways he blesses opposite-sex marriages. Most side A gay Christians believe that the Bible is not binding or prescriptive for a modern context. A side B perspective is that same-sex attraction is not what God intended and is a result of the fall. But we do not choose who we are attracted to, and there is no formula for changing one's attractions. There is no context for same-sex sexual or romantic activity that God blesses, so they are sins. God calls all Christians to a vocation of celibacy or marriage with someone of the opposite sex. So far, so good. It's the last sentence of the description that allows for the rub, though. The website says, Side B gay Christians may identify as gay in a limited way, finding it helpful to identify with those of a shared heritage and similar life experiences. And it's this identification 
and whether or not it's limited that controls how we are to think of side B gay Christians. For the Christian, as I've said, there cannot be any identification outside of new creation in Christ. There are true things about us, of course. I'm tall, I'm white, I am an American, but none of those things are my identity. Neither is my sexuality, my heterosexuality. In my experience, when people, gay, straight, or otherwise, allow something that is true about them to become part of their identity, even in a supposedly limited way, that thing grows and grows, often metastasizing and beginning to take over the identity altogether. Identity is a lion masquerading as a kitten. We think we can control it, that it will obey us, but it is in fact prone to devour us whole. Our identities must be ruthlessly single-faceted, as the song goes, in Christ alone. So how are we to think of, quote, side B gay Christians? Well, simply as Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. This is how our College of Bishops has asked us to think about them. I'll refer you here to their pastoral statement on sexuality and identity that you can find on the reading list. We are blessed as members of the ACNA to have leadership who has given us godly direction on this exact issue. Their counsel is simple. We are to think of them as Christians struggling with same-sex attraction, not as gay Christians or side B Christians, but as Christians struggling with sinful desires. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like you and like me. As I said during my talk on sexuality, Christians who are dealing with sexual attraction outside of what God has created are not a sexual minority. Gay Christians are held to the same standard that everyone else is. Fidelity in the context of lifelong heterosexual marriage and chastity outside of it. Their Christian life and their life in relation to the church is actually exactly like ours. We hear their confession as we would anyone's. We announce Christ's finished work and the forgiveness it confers as we would to anyone. We walk beside them as they strive for righteousness as we would with anyone. But we encourage them again as we would anyone not to found even one ounce of their identity on a sexual desire especially not a disordered one. Their identity, like any Christian's, must be founded solely on Christ. Question number four. Due to the nature and sensitivity of these issues of justice and identity, should we change our evangelism methods at all? For instance, does sharing the gospel with a black man or a trans woman, or a wealthy person look different? There's a small part of me that just wants to say no and move on to the next question, but I understand what's being asked here. And so I think 
Though I think that the evangelistic message is the same for everyone. First, acknowledge that there is a holy God and that before him you are a sinner. And second, acknowledge and believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again for your salvation. I think that even though that's one evangelistic message for everyone, since that message is almost always couched in terms of a relationship, the sharing itself might change depending on the person to whom you're talking. Imagine it like this. When, when Billy Graham preached to a stadium full of people, he preached one message, not dozens. He called all to repentance and all to salvation in Christ's name. He didn't have one message for the rich, one for the poor, one for the Republican, one for the Democrat, and so on. But... I imagine that if Billy Graham was talking to one person, he might potentially change how he said things in order to better reach that one person. St. Paul acknowledges as much in Corinthians chapter 9 when he says that, quote, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become, he says, all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul becomes all things to all people in order that he might share the one gospel message with them. But I don't think that that means there's a gospel presentation for a black man or a gospel presentation for a trans woman. It might mean that there's a gospel presentation for Steve, your friend, or for Tracy, or for that person you know, or whomever. But people are not reducible to their characteristics. Perhaps the prostitute Mary Magdalene and the tax collector Matthew needed to be spoken to in different ways. But that doesn't mean that every prostitute or every tax collector is the same, except in one profound way, of course. They all need to be introduced to Jesus. Evangelistic interactions are aimed toward the same ultimate goal, to show someone their need for a savior and then to introduce them to that savior. So my answer here is yes and no. Depending on your relationship with the person you're sharing the gospel with and who they are, the specific nature of your presentation might change the place you start, the obstacles you might need to overcome, the illustrations you might use may be specific to that person, but the gospel itself does not change. In Hebrews 13, we are given the great comfort that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is also the same no matter who is being told about him. Question number five. For Christians who are seeking biblical justice, how should we respond to the biblical concept of ancestral sins? 
2 Samuel 21 seems to provide an example. Let's assume that I know my ancestors, who were slave owners, used their wealth to oppress and steal from the ancestors of others, slaves my family owned in this country. What responsibility do I have in regard to this ancestral sin as a Christian seeking biblical justice? (coughs) So let me say a word about 2 Samuel 21 first. Here's the story that some have taken, and when you hear it, you'll understand why, that some have taken to mean that blameless people, I shouldn't say blameless, because none of us is blameless, but blameless for a particular sin in the present, might be responsible to atone for the sins of a previous generation. So in 2 Samuel, there's a famine in Israel. And when King David prays to God about it, God tells him that there is, quote, blood guilt on Saul and his house because Saul had murdered some of the Gibeonite people. David then approaches the Gibeonites to see how he might make amends. And they ask for seven sons of Saul to be given to them to be executed. David complies with their request. The seven are executed. After that, the Bible said, God responded to the plea for the land. The famine is ended. So at first glance, it seems that David is being held responsible as king of Israel for Saul's sin as the previous king. And that when David pays a penalty, in this case with the lives of seven men, that in some, that in some sense makes the required atonement for that sin. So does that mean, the question asks, that a present day descendant of slaveholders then is liable under God's law to make restitution for that previous sin? And I'm going to say no, but I want to qualify it by saying that I do think that a present-day person can and should lament the sins of the past. And we may even feel called by God to do something in concert with that lament. Look up the descendants of the slaves your family owned, perhaps. Give money to organizations dedicated to financially helping people whose families were unjustly held back by slavery in America's past. We are called and have a responsibility to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. But it does not seem to me that the law of God requires restitution of the kind that happens in 2 Samuel 21. So first of all, as we get through this, Deuteronomy 24.16, a clear legal text, not a narrative story, Deuteronomy 24.16 clearly teaches that, quote, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Similarly, Ezekiel 18.20 says that the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on himself, The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I think that narratives, such as what we find in 2 Samuel 21, have to be treated in a different way than clear legal teaching. Indeed, just because something happens in the Bible, even if it happens at the hands of God, 
doesn't necessarily mean that it carries hortatory weight in the present day for us. If narratives in the Bible were binding on our current behavior, we might find ourselves necessarily engaged in holy wars or polygamy or the firebombing of cities that we considered to be akin to Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't believe that a story like that of David and the Gibeonites binds the consciences of all those descended from sinners. Saul committed many atrocious acts that David is not called to account for. So it doesn't seem like this kind of generational retribution is a repeatable matter of course. There are some things that, unlike this instance in 2 Samuel 21, that David does not have to make restitution for. So this is not an always thing, even within this particular generation of kings, in one place at pretty much one time. That makes it difficult to see how this one story might be applied as legally normative to the modern day, when so much is different. Again, recall that this is not a legal text. This is not a moral teaching, which are applicable across all times and places. This is a narrative story. We don't have a king. We are not God's chosen nation. It's even possible that the seven sons of Saul who were offered up for this execution were directly involved with the travesty that was perpetrated against the Gibeonites. They may be paying for their own sins directly instead of for the sins of Saul. And there was also certainly a special covenantal relationship, which is noted in Joshua chapter 9, between Israel and the Gibeonites specifically, which makes this even more likely to be a unique historical case inappropriate to generalize widely from. In any event, our consciences are bound to be impartial. This is the teaching of the scriptures. Now, the Holy Spirit may well move and probably will move in our hearts to be caring for those less fortunate than ourselves, including those who are less fortunate because of the sins of the past including sins our ancestors committed in the past. And I'd expect the Holy Spirit to move in the hearts of the church and that that would look like compassion and generosity. But those are the fruit of the Spirit, not works of the flesh. They are brought forth by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, not by the application of the law. So listen to God. Pray, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as you love your neighbor as yourself. Question number six. How should we respond to the objective truth of intersex conditions in which genitalia and other features do not seem to line up cleanly with one of the two sexes? The questioner brings up, and androgen insensitivity syndrome, AIS, as one extreme example in which women seeking fertility treatments discover in their 20s or 30s that they are genetically male. So basically the question is, while God made us male and female, how are we to think about individuals who for clearly biological reasons do not neatly fit into one category or another? I heard an interview actually this week uh, with Dr. Carol Hooven, H-O-O-V-E-N, 
who is an evolutionary biologist and lecturer at Harvard. Her focus is on behavioral endocrinology and sex differences. And when pressed in this interview about whether or not human sex exists on a spectrum, she insisted that there are two sexes in humans, male and female. I'm going to read you her quote now and recall that this is not written written out academically. She's responding verbally in an interview, so it's not, you know, the most erudite response you've ever heard. But this is her response to the idea that human sex exists on a spectrum. Quote, the only physical traits that matter for sex are the body plan for the gametes. That's all that matters. If you have testes and you're designed to be producing sperm, that is a male animal. If you're going to be producing eggs, that is a female animal. Or large gametes as opposed to small gametes, that's it. All these other things can be different. Maybe you could be a male with a small body size and low muscle mass, and maybe you don't even produce testosterone. Or maybe you don't even respond to testosterone, but that doesn't mean you're not male. It means that you might have some condition, or you're different in some way, or you have a different kind of gender expression. But it doesn't mean that you're no longer male, or that there are five sexes or three sexes, or that it's on a spectrum. And what she's saying is, if you drill down deep enough to the gametes, you're going to find male or female. There are certainly intersex conditions, she readily affirms, but they are conditions that happen to a male or to a female, not conditions that make a person not male or female. Dr. Hooven even tells stories of people sexed female at birth and raised as girls because of the appearance of their sex organs, who, like in the example of AIS that we heard about, come to find out years later that they're actually male. Now, that's a hard conversation, to be sure. One could even imagine, in the context of a Christian church, a woman who is struggling to conceive, discovering that she has AIS and is actually a man. And if she's struggling to conceive and is a Christian, it logically follows that this person is married and is having sex with what, come to find out, is another man. This raises all sorts of seemingly impossible questions. Does this person who has just discovered he is a man need to have his marriage annulled? Was he ever truly married in the first place? Can he have sex? With whom? What does this mean for the rest of his sexual life? I don't know how to even begin having such a conversation except in a church, except under the care and protection of the Holy Spirit, except in a situation where it is clearly understood by all parties that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all of creation is groaning in sin and crying out for redemption and that Christ's saving death and resurrection is sufficient for every broken person, every broken body, and every broken relationship. I do think that it's worth remembering that though AIS and other intersex conditions will certainly lead to hard conversations, 
All the conversations that Christians have about sex are hard. Even the most, quote, normal of sexual situations, a man and a woman in a lifelong loving union. Those of you who are engaged in this, quote, normal sexual situation will know how difficult the conversations sometimes are, even without any other complicating factors. And there are almost always other complicating factors. Even in the simplest of situations, we're asking people to give themselves to each other sexually, to serve each other and no one else with their bodies, and to be pure even down to the level of their thoughts. All of our sexual conversations are hard. That doesn't mean that we can't have them. So when we think of intersex people, then, we must first, of course, care compassionately for them. But as I've said several times this morning, we do that because we care compassionately for all struggling people. Jesus told us that in this world we would have struggles. And intersex is a difficult one to be sure. But let's not make the mistake of assuming that the more common or socially normalized struggles that we see every day are less difficult. Let us take heart as Jesus called us to. He has overcome the world. Okay, so those are the six questions that I got. And as I said at the beginning, please don't consider these issues closed. We won't be addressing them regularly on Sunday mornings. We're still going to be about the word proclaimed, the sacrament received, and the scriptures opened. But these are definitely the things that the world is going to continue to talk about, and I'll be available to talk about them too. I should also say how grateful I am to the vestry the staff and other leadership of Grace Church for supporting me through the conception and execution of this class, for their encouragement, for their biblical faithfulness. A few of them were even willing to look over all the talks and these answers to the questions, lending another set of eyes to make sure that as best we can be, we are faithful to God's proclamation on these topics. It would, of course, certainly be my job and calling to address these issues, even if our vestry wasn't in 100% agreement, but we can praise God that our lay leadership is unified on these issues. We talk about them at the vestry and staff level. We pray for God's guidance and are committed to founding everything we do in this church on the solid rock of biblical witness. Speaking of biblical witness, we're certainly not stopping now. Next week, Brian Lilly will be starting his class on the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. It'll happen right here, this time and place, 11 a.m. after the worship service. Please come and study the Bible with us. For now, let's pray. Thank you, God, for speaking into the world, for giving us your word for not leaving us adrift. Help us to understand what you've said. Help us to know what to say to a confused world. Help us to be the city on a hill that you've called us to be. Help us to be the salt of the earth and a light to the world. 
We know that it is only in you that these things are possible. Please bless this church. Make your word go out from us and accomplish its purposes. Redeem us when we fall short. Remind us that in Christ you are reconciling the world to yourself and that your mercies are new every morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.